You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. I first met Jacob when he was raising money for Uptrust, and I became so excited about the mission, I invested. After working in private equity and investment banking, Jacob Sill's passion for criminal justice reform led him to start Uptrust, a communication and engagement platform focused on ending mass incarceration. To date, Uptrust has helped over 300,000 people across 22 states navigate the criminal justice system and avoid violations that could send them to jail or prison. Jacob received his BA from Cornell University and his MBA from the Warden School at the University of Pennsylvania. I met Jacob when he was fundraising and I became an investor excited about his passion and the amazing impact that the company is having. On the podcast, we talked about how he investigated the market at the beginning and learned how to be a bail bondman, actually went to see uh, bail be set and doing the real research to understand a market. Talk about finding a co-founder and early customers, decisions he's made to protect the mission and the importance of market sizing. Please stay tuned. Jacob, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Miles. Really pumped. So if you had a magic wand, what is the number one thing you would do to change the criminal justice system? You probably would need more than one magic wand, but I would say if I had to think about two wands, the first is I think the criminal justice system is not really a a system per se, but really an outcome from a lot of sort of failed sort of government interventions. And so when I look at the criminal justice system, a lot of the people that enter into it suffer from mental illness a lack of housing, a lack of consistent healthcare and employment opportunities. And so the criminal justice system itself, I I wouldn't think with the magic wand is is where I would start. I would start in these other things that by not working, end up with people entering into the criminal legal system. Within the criminal justice system itself, I would think I would imbue the front end of the system with more empathy. If you look at how people get arrested and how they enter into the system, it's often for smaller offenses. And I think there's an opportunity for whether it's police prosecutors who decide to charge crimes or judges that adjudicate them in these processes. There's an opportunity, I think, to see people for people and to move them into more diversionary programs where they can get help they need versus putting them in jail and prison. So you would offer alternatives to prison? I think that's right. And and it's not even just prison. It's, it's, there's even nascent initiatives that are alternatives to a formal arrest. There are programs run by certain police departments called LEAD, uh, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. And where these processes go is you might get arrested, but you're not actually formally booked. And an individual will take these charges and say, hey, look, if you go to treatment and get the help you need, we're going to rip up this arrest and it will never have happened. And so really the focus is getting people the help they need versus punishing them. Because one of the things 
that's really interesting. And, and a real thought leader in the space, Alec Herkatsanis, who runs an organization, Civil Rights Corps, and was really influential for me when I was creating our company, talks about is, is to some extent, there's a capricious nature of how our society defines crime. People may be arrested for sleeping on the sidewalk. However, you know, if a company pollutes, they might just get a fine. And so I think these diversionary programs that have alternatives to arrest or alternatives to incarceration are really, really critical. It's kind of like a suspended sentence, except for it's a suspended arrest. Exactly. Exactly. And, and even within that, and I think, you know, we probably don't have time to go into all the details of, of not just the criminal legal system, but, but in terms of how people view reform, some people don't even like that, Miles. You know, I would say I'm probably more on the center left if you were sort of to look at some kind of gradient here. Some people, obviously, as you see in the news, want to abolish the police, in which case, you know, they wouldn't even want a suspended sentence. They would want, you know, nothing. And then there's some people that might say, hey, no, like, why are we suspending a sentence? You know, people, if, if you do the crime, you got to do the time. We should punish them to the full extent of the law. One of the things that was really interesting to me is, and doesn't really get covered enough in the media, is when people just want more and more punishment, the research doesn't really support that. A lot of research has shown that you know, people are going to sort of commit things that might be considered crimes in, in our society. But like if you punish them for five years instead of two years, it doesn't actually negate it. It's not like a supply-demand curve where if the price goes up, uh, you know, demand goes down. So deterrence doesn't work the way people expect, you're saying? I think that's right. And that's what the, the research would support. Now, you mentioned that, was it Alex or Alec was influential when you were starting your company? Tell us more about that. Yeah. And so I was graduating business school and was looking at a few different opportunities. And one of the places where I had experience was in financial services. I was an investment banker covering insurance companies out of college. And one of the areas I was looking at were what are areas in the insurance industry that are not really being focused on? And you, know, you had a lot of technology looking at homeowners insurance, renters insurance, auto insurance. And these were all these companies like Lemonade and Metro Mile. And, and to be honest, I, I didn't think they were great markets to, to go into in part because you had really great incumbents like Geico and Progressive that I thought you know, were very, very good. But I, I looked at some areas that, that were under, you know, funded and underunderstood, and one of them was bail surety. And I was like, wow, bail bonds. Like, I don't know much about it, but that seems like a place that no one is going to be looking at you know, coming out of grad school. So I, I actually spent time and went through a training program to be a bail agent. I started spending time in courtrooms to understand how bail was set. I, I really came at this at like a more of a traditional, almost like middle market private equity perspective of there was huge fragmentation of the market. There's no risk-based pricing. I could create a better bail bond product and by doing so, lower the price and therefore help more people afford bail, which would lower our jail populations. But I really wanted to take a, a pretty broad view and, and talk to a lot of different stakeholders. So that meant not just bail agents, but prosecutors, judges, public defenders, advocates, people impacted by the system. And in doing so, what became really apparent to me was that bail really wasn't an honest financial product, but was actually just a tax. And what I mean by that was, you know, to me, an honest financial product has a certain amount of risk, and that risk is priced. 
and the market kind of decides what that is. And that's the honest, you know, risk-based price. You might have that in sort of mortgage markets, but you don't have that in bail because bail is arbitrarily set by, you know, an entity and there was really no competition. And the actual underlying risk, which was called flight risk, didn't really exist. And to go a little deeper on that, you know, watching Law and Order growing up, I would think about you know, people like a Bernie Madoff type that, you know, oh man, you're gonna, you got arrested, you've got your trial coming up, you're going to flee the country. But what I found was 80% of all people arrested are at or below the poverty line. So they don't have the resources to flee, even if they wanted to. And so when I dug into it and I looked at this idea of flight risk that was being assessed to price this bail, it really didn't exist. And what I saw was that there was actually models that were tested out on a very small local scale vis-a-vis community bail funds that showed that you could get 97 plus percent of people to show up to court if you just gave them the right reminder and helped them maybe with transportation. And so that kind of was a light bulb for me, which said, you know, wow, instead of trying to create a for-profit company that might address some of the social ills, but kind of perpetuate a system that I didn't believe in, you, know, you could actually create a technology platform that could address the core root of this non-compliance and actually save money for jurisdictions and help people get better outcomes. So you're saying people don't run away from their court date more often, they just forget? Yeah, they forget. They have trouble with transportation. They have childcare challenges. One of there was two books that were really influential to me that I had read. You know, one was Evicted by Matthew Desmond, and another one was Scarcity by Sendel Mullenathan and Elder Shafir. And those books sort of talked A about like the real challenges that, you know, housing insecure people had, then also a lot of the behavioral science around how low-income individuals might make what we would consider suboptimal decisions. Like why take out this payday loan if you know you can't afford to, to pay the interest? One of the things that you know, was surprising to me was you know, this was a great example of where these market inefficiencies were happening because people were legitimately forgetting. And you'd sort of say, how do you forget your court date? But you know, these are folks that are trying to put food on the table, think about childcare, think about a job, trying to uh, you know, do 9 million more things than you and I might be trying to do in a given day. And they have cognitive bandwidth challenges, and they literally might forget or show up to the wrong court date or the wrong courtroom. And that was like a real pain point that needed solving. So when you say there was a system you didn't believe in, you're referring to bail? And if so, when did you form that opinion? It took a little bit of time. And yes, uh, bail was the system that I didn't believe in. And, you know, just if I had to summarize my view on bail reform, my lack of belief in the, in the money bail system is that if someone is a danger to society, maybe they shouldn't be released, but that really shouldn't have to do with how much money they have. And this is where there's a lot of breakdown when people say, well, like in San Francisco perspective, for example, oh, we have a problem. We got rid of money bail and now crime is up. Well, if you set bail at $1,000 that someone can't afford, well, if they could afford it, that doesn't actually make society safer. So really you're punishing them for being poor or you don't want any bail to be set and you think people should be considered guilty and put in jail before they've actually been found guilty. And that's just something I don't believe in based on you know, my reading of the law. Now, how did I get there? I think it's really important when looking at anything, whether it's 
traditional venture back company, a nonprofit, anything you do is to really think through all the different stakeholders and, and really take that 360 perspective. So for me, I didn't come into this to say, hey, I'm going to start up trust and let me have a firm view on bail reform. I really was like, wow, we spend 25 plus billion dollars a year on jailing people that don't need to be jailed. There's no good use of technology. There must be an opportunity here. And let me talk to folks. And when I talked to folks who had been jailed and lost their job because they had to like be put in jail for a week until their case was dismissed, that made me start thinking and questioning some of my hypotheses. When I talked to folks who are leading advocates in this space, that made me sort of test my hypotheses. And, I, and over you know, a several month period, you know, had a much firmer view as to how I would you know, think through this policy. So tell us more about the company. Sure. So, so what Uptrust is, is it's an engagement and communication platform that helps people navigate sort of confusing government processes and avoid really bad outcomes. And so where this is most pronounced is the criminal justice and child welfare systems. And as I touched on, you know, each year over a million people go to jail or prison for a technical violation. So this is not like committing a new crime, you know, robbing banks and things that might seem sensational in the media. But this is something like missing an appointment with a probation officer, being late for a court date, missing a drug test. And these are all avoidable, uh, avoidable infractions that can really hurt everyone. You know, the government's going to waste a ton of money. People are losing jobs. Their loved ones might have trauma, you know, kids losing their parents and so on. So, you know, to help people make it to more appointments and take advantage of relevant existing services, what we did was we built a software platform that would connect people on their mobile phones to relevant stakeholders. So that might be their public defender, could be their probation officer, could be a social worker, and basically remind them of their appointments, help them keep a calendar, and inform them of relevant services. The idea and what our data over several hundred thousand people that we've had on our platform would, would, would prove is that you know, if you do these little supportive behavioral nudges, you get much better outcome. You know, we've seen in some jurisdictions failure to appear rates, which is sort of the metric of people who miss court, uh, decreased by upwards of 50%. That's a big change. Yeah. And it's one of those things where we got our start in Contra Costa County uh, in the East Bay, right outside of San Francisco. And we were seeing some of these numbers and it was a small scale. And I was like, like, is this right? And then, you know, we started talking to people who are using our platform and Again, if people aren't fleeing anywhere, you, know, you should be able to have really, really high success rates as it relates to court attendance. And I guess that's one of the things that also was really surprising to me when we were researching this space was that if you spoke to the average person who had a court date, I expected most people to say, I don't want to go to court. Screw the system. In actuality, People said, no, I, I, I know I need to go. I know it's always in my best outcome to show up and confront these situations. So no, I just need help. And how do you turn this into a business? So where we focus on is there is a lot in, well, let me pause there. One of the things that we found that's really exciting is that there are a bunch of different segments that need this service within the government. You know, when we started, we really were focusing on selling to public defenders and supporting, you know, increased court attendance. And what we found is there's a bunch of other verticals, some we're launching right now, some will launch later this year, and things like the child welfare system or working with prosecutors to help witnesses get connected to services. So 
think about someone who might be a victim of domestic violence, where they can find supportive housing and trauma-informed care and things of that nature. And when you think about it as a business, different parts of these government institutions might think about it differently. So public defenders might be motivated by helping their clients get better outcomes and staying out of jail because a public defender decided to be a public defender instead of a white shoe lawyer because they care about you know, addressing system inequality. A probation department might care about increasing staff efficiency and, and relieving them of the burden of making you know, hundreds of phone calls. And then you know, child welfare systems might be motivated by cost. Uh, it's very expensive to send a child to foster care and new federal funding has actually incentivized them to keep more families together. So what that all means is the business is really the same platform, but we might position it slightly differently for different segments. And really what people are paying for is improved efficiency, which they're able to do with software like Uptrust versus you know, historically them you know, making manual phone calls manually texting clients. They might have hundreds of clients at a time, which isn't really efficient. Or worse, uh, people doing nothing, which is not really good for outcomes, which more and more departments are starting to focus on. You know, Historically, a probation department, no one really cared if you had a recidivism rate of 60%. And now people are starting to ask those questions. You know, we're working with one county in California where 40% of their jail population is there for a technical violation of probation. And so obviously the county board of commissioners are pretty incentivized to, to cut those costs and to improve sort of outcomes so less people are in jail and more people are staying gainfully employed. What's it like selling to governments, particularly the very beginning of your company? Tough. I think, it's, I think it can be challenging and We've tried a bunch of different things and are continually evolving, and, and we're still an early stage company. So if I had to give you, you know, expert opinion on how to succeed, I, I probably couldn't do that at this stage. What I would say is it's really important to find the right customers and to make sure you're addressing pain points that all different stakeholders want addressed. And what I mean by that, in sort of to give you an example of some of the challenges we've seen in the probation system, is you know, not all probation departments are created equal. Some really want to help get better client outcomes and lower the number of people in jail and prison. Some don't care. So rather than trying to sort of sell to all of them, because that's the worldview that I and our team of really mission aligned technologists have, that's not going to get you the success you need to move at the pace that we want to move. So then you find, okay, this might seem like the right customer. They care about what we care about. Well, then does the chief really care? Let's say yes. Well, do the line staff care? Maybe not. And so we really need to make sure that the product that you're, you're selling is not just something that sounds good to the, the, the senior decision maker, but is really, really important to line staff as well. Now, this isn't rocket science. This is sort of the same types of learnings that any sales process or any complicated sales process goes through. You know, you can sell a financial services type SaaS platform to a CFO, but you know, if the accounting department doesn't like it, you know, it's probably not going to get adopted as much. So for us, the government, it's, it's really around, you know, kind of universal truce around complex sales processes, but also really being deliberate in terms of word of mouth. That's really critical of government and really, really important to focus on timing and patience. 
I can't tell you how many times working with a site that, you know, we thought it would take 30 to 60 days and it's taken, you know, six months to a year and you just need to be patient and, you know, continually rolling that ball up the hill slowly. And eventually you get, you know, to the top and then things roll down. Last thing I'd say with government sales is while scary, slow, and can be difficult to predict, once you do hit product market fit, A, you move quickly and B, you have very, very low churn. So, you know, we see very, very low churn compared to, you know, similar fast growing, you know, SaaS companies like ourselves. So low churn, but long sales cycles. What does that mean for growth? It means that, you know, I think we grow at a fast rate, you know, over the last two years, we've grown hundred percent year over year, but it's a little bit more difficult. I think with the product that we sell to achieve you know, more traditional, you know, venture back growth where people might be growing, you know, over a multi-year period of, you know, 25% month over month or something of that nature. So, you know, I think for us, that means you need to grow sustainably. You need to, you know, be cognizant that you can't, you know, throw a hundred engineers at a problem, like maybe someone selling some kind of, you know, I don't know, productivity software to small and medium-sized businesses might say, well, we can raise like a $30 million series A and go throw a lot of people at the problem. So you just need to be really deliberate about your go-to-market. You need to be scrappy and you need to make sure that you're choosing the right customers. Otherwise, things do take way too long and you don't get the growth that you need to support your business. And so how have you approached investors? Well, for us, it has somewhat evolved. So when we started, we weren't even sure what this was. You know, for me, I was really, really interested in the problem that I was seeing around bail and how unfair it was to low and middle income individuals. So for me, I really just jumped into the problem and was like, I need to do something about this. And, you know, you can say this is somewhat of like maybe antiquated, sort of a noblesse oblige feeling, but I kind of had this view of like, I have this great education. I have these resources. I see a problem. I think I can solve it. Whereas, you know, I think historically I thought, oh, I would stay in finance and then one day, you know, attain enough wealth to start giving money away. I was like, wow, I can actually have impact right now by building this platform. So the first piece was like, I don't know what this is, but like, I need to build it. So we did that. We weren't sure if this was a venture-backed company or not. So actually our first investor was a foundation called the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation that sort of said, look, you know, this might be a venture-backable company. This might be just a sustainable business, but you know, we think there's enough impact here and we think there's a software business to be had with high enough gross margins that this can be sustainable and cash flow positive. So we're going to support you. So at first we were, you know, funded by by a foundation. We received some grant funds to to pilot our technology. And then as we grew, we we then sort of tested the market again. What we found was there was less traditional venture capital interested in where we were at the time in part because how we sold to the government really produced a TAM less than a billion or $3 billion. And so where we raised money from was impact investors, as well as foundations via um, program-related investment that said, wow, I think this can be a very large sustainable business, but it might not you know, grow at a, you know, the clip I mentioned before to become a billion-dollar business in three to five years. And so for us, I would say, especially now, if you look around what's happening in the financial markets where multiples are compressing, you know, 50 to 70%, and a lot of companies are, are 
you know, cutting lots of staff, that makes it, I think, challenging for us because in one sense, we're a sustainable business that delivers an immense amount of social impact, but we're not a typical foundation uh, focused, you know, grantee, i.e. we're not a nonprofit and we're not a traditional venture backed company. And so we're kind of in the middle there. And one of the things that I think, you know, you've talked about in a lot of other with some of your guests is that there is this, you know, nascent growing area around impact investing, but it's still very new. And there's not a lot of folks that that's kind of support this sort of middle tack that we've really taken in growing our business. And how do you define that trade-off when you're thinking the continuum between nonprofit and high growth venture back? How do you think about the continuum and where profit comes to the fore, where mission comes to the fore? Sure. So I think there's not one thing. You know, I, I think about, uh, sorry, the first thing that came to my mind was I read some survey the other day around like some psychiatric test around if someone has like narcissistic personality disorder and there was like 10 traits or 12 traits. And it was like, if someone has more than six or seven, you know, they're probably a narcissist. Uh, I think about it here in the sense that there's not one thing, right? Like we always want to simplify things to some kind of binary. Like, do you care about mission or do you care about profits? Like, it's not so simple. The types of things that I think define us as kind of being in the middle is one, are you okay with sub venture supported markets? So for us, when we raised our seed round, if we were to raise venture capital, we would have had to stop working with public defenders. Public defenders is a market that's, you know, several million dollars of TAM, but we think it's valuable because it's an entry point into county and statewide governments. It helps us build familiarity with our end user. And there's an immense amount of impact we have. You know, we've kept tens of thousands of people out of jail by having hundreds of thousands of people on our platform. So I think the first thing is, is that trade-off, right? Like if we were a traditional venture-backed company and I was investing in us, the first thing I'd say is that's a distraction. All you need to be focused on is trying to build a multi-billion dollar company and that's a distraction. So I think one of the things is like the decisions you make, are you comfortable with making decisions that might generate profit, but don't generate venture-like returns? That kind of then dovetails into like, what kind of race are you running? And I think it's really important because that ties into the capital that you raise is like, do you want this to be sustainable or do you want to sort of try to hit a home run or strike out? And you would know this better than me, Miles, but you know, if you look at you know, all the research on traditional venture funds and power laws, like the model is to try to hit the home run. And so it doesn't mean you can't hit the home run and have massive impact. I, you know, I listened to your episode with Jimmy Chin from Propel, and I think they're a great example of a traditional venture-backed company that really cares about mission because as they make more money, they're helping more people. But short of that, you know, if you're not comfortable really swinging for the fences, in my view on our company was, I would rather not build a platform that then potentially would go bankrupt and, and sort of negate the impact that we're having. You know, I'm going to be a little bit more conservative in how we grow. And those are doing decisions, like I mentioned before, around like being comfortable with, you know, non-venture backable TAM and things like that. So it sounds like the amount of risk you take and the markets you choose are two really important areas where you feel like you're making different decisions to protect the mission. I think that's right. And I, I think if you're looking at giant, well-defined addressable markets, I think you could argue that there's going to be multi, multiple competitors. 
And so as an entrepreneur, you really should try to be either a very large funded nonprofit or you should be a venture-backed company because if you fail, someone else will succeed in solving that pain point. But I think you're right. If you think about like market sizing, being comfortable with a sub-venture-backable market size is actually a way that you can bring capital to these underserved markets that are not going to be served you know, by you know, really, really strong teams. And I think about that in the context of when I think about our competitors, our competitors are generally private equity-backed you know, ankle monitoring and electronic monitoring companies that are not just like not mission oriented, they're like antithetical to our mission. You know, they're looking to uh, charge the end user a lot of money to create more compliance requirements that can lead to them going to jail for, you know, forgetting to plug in their phone. And so I think you have these markets that can produce really large companies, but just might not produce, you know, a $10 billion exit. Gotcha. I think that's where, if I had to think about like where financial markets and capital markets can, can potentially evolve, is I, I think there's an opportunity here. You know, when we were raising our seed round, we spent some time talking to some, you know, quote unquote impact investors. And I say quote unquote is they would say, well, you don't have a multi billion dollar TAM. So this is not something we want to look at. And I said, like, we have good relationships with top VCs. Like, yes, like we know that, <laughs> you know, but I think where there's a real, opportunity is, can you create really efficient business models that don't require tens of millions of dollars of capital to get to cash flow positive that might not have be the giant market, but you can build a dominant market share and build a business that's worth you know tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and, and really produce a really solid rate of return for investors. There is not a lot of people that are making investments systematically into opportunities like that. And I think there, there is an opportunity to build a lot of companies like that that can do a lot of good. Now, how do you think about starting and running a software business when your background is on the investment banking side? I, I think like any business you build, it's all about team. And so for us, and for me specifically, was the first thing I had to do was to find the right partner. And so for me, you know, my co-founder was Eli Gwynn, who had an extensive software background, and him and I were able to sort of build out the first prototype of Uptrust. And as we started scaling, Eli and I had joined our team, uh, Matthew Root, who had you know extensive experience building teams in software. And so you know between us, thinking from like both core engineering and architecture and product and sort of engineering management, and myself from from a business and strategy perspective, you know we were able to sort of go and start growing. But no, I think if you're a non-technical co-founder trying to build anything in software, your first and foremost is to network and to you know have the right technical co-founder or else, you know, generally speaking, you're kind of dead on arrival. How did you source and select a co-founder? So it was, you know, mostly networking and talking to different folks around what you're doing. And, you know, if I had to think about it, it's just like any kind of thing you're trying to do. You think about what's the right co-founder, you know, it's going to be someone who's mission aligned, who cares about what you're doing who has broad brace skill sets, who's going to be able to attract other talented individuals. And I kind of looked at that and just started talking to as many people as possible. And that means people from business school that had started tech companies, talking to them about how they went about it, talking to anyone I knew on LinkedIn, who maybe from growing up that was a software engineer and asking them to talk to their friends and, and kind of was coming upon me was to be able to sell that vision that was like, hey, 
there's billions of dollars of being wasted here and millions of lives being destroyed. You know, do you want to use your skills for something that really, really matters? Or do you want to work on sort of optimizing this ad algorithm? What do you want to do? And, and a lot of people don't want to make that trade-off, but there's enough that do. And that, that population is definitely growing. And so that's how we were able to find you know, the right people to join us on the journey. And when you're first starting out without a technical person on the team, how do you evaluate the technical expertise of that potential co-founder? So that's where you just have to, within your network, find people that you can trust. And so for me, there was a guy that I got connected to early on just through like social interactions and he was formerly a VP of engineering at a company that was like a series B backed company. And so he had built a team from zero to 50, you know, great engineer. And I said, Hey, can I introduce you to some folks that I'm thinking of having work with me? And can you kind of give me uh, some guidance of what you think? And he was really, really helpful. There was someone we were going to hire and, and he, you know, really after I felt comfortable with it, you know, gave me the thumbs down and I had to trust him. And in hindsight, it was totally the right decision. And when we found the right person, I said, what do you think? And, and he was like, you can't move fast enough. This is exactly what you need. So I think with everything in life, it's, it's really knowing your own weaknesses and knowing where you have uh, blind spots and, and trying to you know, lean into improving them, but arguably more critically, bringing people within your orbit that don't have those same deficiencies that can help you know, patch those holes. Now, we've talked some about challenges, but I wanted to offer you the opportunity to share any more that stick out. I think one of the, you know, as talked about, I think funding can be a challenge when you're kind of in this middle, middle ground. I think there's new and innovative ways that, that people are financing these businesses, uh, such as like impact-oriented revenue-based finance and, and other things. But I think, you know, when you're not full-on nonprofit or not a full-on venture capital business, I, I think it can be a challenge, especially where we're seeing right now where most of our typical investors, uh, their portfolios are down, you know, 70%. And so, you know, are they interested in something that's not going to be a 100x or something like that? The other challenge, I think, as it relates to what we do is really understanding, does the system want to change? And I think one of the things that Perhaps if I look back at when we started up trust, I was a bit simplistic on was I kind of looked at it and said, wow, the criminal justice system is really messed up. It hurts a lot of people. It wastes a lot of money. Everyone wants it reformed. And I kind of expected that the people that wouldn't want it reformed would just be like kind of like cartoonish villains, like the bail agents that would say, no, 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 like we just want to make a profit off the system. But in actuality, the system is a lot more, you know, complex and sort of banal in its complicit nature. And so what I mean by that is the line staff that use our product, they don't necessarily care about the same things that we care about from a reform. They just want to go about their day and, and maybe have it work a little bit better, which is, by the way, a, a reasonable request, but it means that it's a lot more complicated to, to see the change and to enact the change that we want to. You know, also, when I think about challenges, it's like our competitors you know, they're offering a different solution. So they're offering maybe a monitoring device. So that maybe is easier for a line staff than to actually engage with their client and to answer questions they have or to direct them to the right community resource. And so 
I think when I think about a challenge, it's 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 really complicated to uh, you know to solve criminal justice reform. And you know, I think uh, that should be maybe be patently obvious. I think that's a, a challenge that we think is worthy of of working on. It's what got me to, to sort of change careers and to really focus on this. But it's tough. It's really tough. And I think if if I had to sort of give advice to folks looking at this space and others that are similarly. You, know, you really need to find those little rivulets, those little wedges, the opportunities where you know people are really interested in solving the problem that you want to solve because you know we're not an advocacy organization, we're a business, and we do need to post growth numbers and we do need to get to cash flow positive and deliver profits you know if we want to be truly sustainable. Any advice you would offer aspiring founders? This is another one of those questions where probably have we need hours. I think in terms of advice that I would give, you know, one was if you really have an itch and you really want to do something, like go do it. There's no replacement, both from you know the satisfaction you get from seeing something that you envision to being used in real life, uh, but also to having the impact. Just you got to go do it. You can't get that feeling from sitting on the sidelines. Two. I think being really, really open and honest at the beginning of what you're trying to build, I think is really important. And I see this a lot around mission-driven, you know, for-profits, especially those in the criminal justice system. And the advice I get people is say, what do you want this to be? And you should have all of your decisions and all of your activities, if you will, aligned behind that. I think that's a mistake that I might've made, which was early on, you know, I wasn't sure. And, and I think I was comfortable with that. And maybe early on, I could have pushed myself a little bit harder to say, you know, do you want this to just be a sustainable business? Do you want this to be a, a fast-growing venture-backed company? Should this be a nonprofit? I think understanding, especially if you're a mission-oriented founder, what you want this to be is really important because that's going to decide of who you hire, what you pay them, how you structure that compensation, the investors you bring on board. It creates this whole unique activity system that is very, very different. And I think there are some people who say, hey, I want to be a venture-backed company, but they're not working on a venture-backed TAM and they don't really care about making the hard decisions you're going to have to make to do that. And I think it's going to create problems for them down the road. So I think you got to do that really early on, but don't let that dissuade you. Once you figure out what, what matters to you and why, then you got to go do it. Inspiring words. Know what you want and then go do it. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Miles. I really, really appreciate the time and the questions. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.